here with composer John Link. John, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, John, my pleasure. So today we're going to talk about uh, the music of Elliot Carter a lot and composition in general. Um, but I was wondering uh, if you could start us off by just telling uh, us about your coffee preferences, your coffee habits, if you have any. That's the general <laughs> icebreaker for this podcast. <clears throat> okay, well, I mean, I have a, a, a bit of a story there. My stepfather for many years uh, co-owned uh, a coffee store uh, where I was growing up. And um, so uh, I, I don't think I quite became a coffee snob in those days, but more recently I have. And I think the COVID pandemic has encouraged me to uh, to be a coffee snob. Uh, so I, I get whole beans from various different places. And um, I have a very nice uh, Japanese pour over coffee system, the Kalita, uh, which I love. And uh, every morning, and now uh, my daughter has, uh, has, my daughters both have gotten very interested in that. Are you uh, like brewing with a scale on the whole nine yards or? Not quite. I, I sort of measure out the beans, but I don't uh, time the water or weigh the, uh, the water as I'm doing the pour over. Although there was a running joke in our household for a while that um, everything had to be done. The water had to be poured in concentric circles. <laughs> so concentric circles, was not, it became the running joke for everything that needed to be done carefully. <laughs> nice. Um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're a Kalita person. I'm, I'm, you know, by day a coffee professional and uh, by night an Elliot Carter fanboy. So um, <laughs> Very good. I'm curious also if you could uh, clue us in on any sort of uh, habits that Elliot Carter had with regards to coffee. Well, that's interesting. I don't know that I ever saw him drink coffee, um, although the, the ritual in their household was tea. And very often people would be invited over for tea and then Helen, Elliot's wife would make a very elaborate tea tray with little biscuits or cookies or something or so Madeleines. More tea in the sort of like English sense of uh, tea drinking or? Yeah, yeah, I think so. The tea time was the, their, their ritual. Interesting, cool. Well, um, thanks for that window into uh, your personal life and Elliot Carter's <laughs> life. Um, so uh, let's dive into some Elliot Carter stuff. Um, so uh, I'm not like I, I don't really want to gear this podcast towards people that don't know anything about him at all. Um, I feel like we can sort of get a little bit technical without worrying about uh, the layperson. But um, I guess in terms of like the untrained ear, though, um, how would you characterize Carter compared to somebody else of similar chromaticism, like Abulez? Oh yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, I uh, I'm by no means a blues expert, although I, I love his music quite a lot. Um, but in in terms of of Elliot's music, I think what's what's most interesting about it is that it is almost consistently multi-layered. So there are uh, almost always um, instruments or groups of instruments that are um, uh, interacting contrapuntally. And in a way, it's it's not more complicated than that. It's not more complicated than the way um, Bach and his musical instruments will interact with each other contrapuntally. Uh, although sometimes in the case of Carter, it's it's much more elaborate rhythmically and there are sometimes more instruments. But for example, in the third string quartet, he divides the quartet up into two pairs of instruments, violin and cello, and then violin and viola. And those two groups play almost entirely contrapuntally. They very rarely have simultaneous attacks together. Um, 
and the idea is to extend that um, that conception of Bach counterpoint to um, to texture and to musical form as well. So the the two groups of instruments will have different kinds of developments that take place over different time scales, and that interact with each other in all kinds of fascinating ways. Um, so it's you know Carter's music is almost universally described as complex, which I think can be rather off-putting for some people. Um, but I've always found it to be incredibly clear from a dramatic standpoint. Uh, and that if you just, uh, if, if you listen carefully and are willing to, uh, uh, to, to give, it a, uh, give it a chance and not run screaming from the room at the first note, uh, mm-hmm. then, then you really need almost no technical uh, expertise in order to, uh, to, to get pleasure from it. So I was reading something about Carter and he describes serialism as, quote, a stultifying intellectual poverty. And I thought that was a a really hilarious description. Um, Because, I mean, I don't think of somebody like Boulez, who is such a a beacon of serialism as being in any way sort of a, you know, lesser. But uh, what am I asking about this? So, uh, I mean, I guess like... He, he's using more like sets instead of tone rows. Um, it, how do you see that as different from like the conventional serialist approach? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, um, Carter's relationship to serial music, however defined, um, is compl- complicated and long. Um, and I think what's often overlooked in discussions about um, 12 tone music or serialism is how, how loaded those terms were politically at the time that um, Carter was an active composer and Bliss too, um, they, they were very much um, words that could um, promote or, or detract from somebody's career, depending on how you characterized yourself. So when Elliot would be asked, you know, do you write serial music? His answer was, was not, I mean, the question was not just a technical question, it was also a political question. And he had to be very careful about how he answered because uh, it might send a message that he didn't want to send that uh, would be detrimental to, uh, to the cause of, of popularizing his music. So uh, an awful lot of what, uh, of what all composers said about 12-tone music or serial music, um, they said with a half an eye on the political ramifications. And of course, those changed over time. For a long time, being a serial composer was something that you know could get you a, a grant uh, or a performance. Uh, and then later on, something saying that you wrote serial music was something that could get you ostracized from a concert or, uh, or something else. So it, it's never just a, a kind of technical consideration. Um, it, it, it always had that political uh, kind of those political overtones. Um, but, you know, all of that said, I think um, Elliot said at one point, um, something like those of us who write this kind of music uh, have been aware for a very long time that um, the only kind of, if you use all 12 notes, the only kind of harmonic motion you can have is unisons or octaves, mm-hmm. right? Which is, you know, very interesting and sort of 12 tonish kind of thing to say, those of us who write this kind of music. So he well understood that, um, the, in working with um, harmonic ways of working with harmonic methods that, that he used, he had a kind of kinship with everyone going back to Schoenberg. Uh, but at the same time, um, 
his his other preoccupations or the way he applied that music was very different from some of those other composers. And he was always exceptionally wary of being lumped in with uh, a school of compositional thought. You know, he was his own person and did not want to be, you know, branded as an acolyte of someone else's system. Um, right, and of course, you know, we see that with Stravinsky and his adoption of 12-tone music too. Uh, so, you know, you always have to think about that in, in two ways, right? What, what uh, kinds of harmonic techniques was Carter interested in, but then also what were the politics and at that specific time that might have led him to describe his music as either not serial or, or describe serialism, as you said, as stultifying or, or whatever it might mm -hmm. be. Um, in terms of like, you know, 12-tone music, and I feel like there's, you know, uh, definite sort of vibe about uh, that, like coming from, you know, Schoenberg and all of them. Uh, could you map that onto any sort of political model? Like, uh, I mean, it seems very, uh, you know, like very much about like the structure and the regulation of, you know, certain distributions of notes, uh, while Elliot Carter's a little bit more uh, intuitive, it seems. Uh, do those map onto any sort of like uh, models of politics? Oh, I don't, I don't know about that. Um... I, yeah, I mean, that. I think there, there are political implications in Carter's music having to do with the individuality of the instruments mm -hmm. reflecting uh, American democracy or the, the ideal of individuals in the society, each contributing his or her own unique gifts and abilities. Um, I, so that, that I think very much plays into, uh, plays into Carter's music um, throughout his career. Um, whether the, the, 12 toneness or the, the whatever the kinds of techniques you use that have commonalities with 12 tone music. I'm not sure those have a, a particular political slant or political cast. I mean, there was, you know, an association that the composers who were writing 12 tone music wanted to make um, with, uh, with sort of evolutionary theories of so-called evolutionary theories of, of the arts that serial music was inevitable. You know, Belez famously wrote about that. Um, and, and I don't, I don't necessarily know that Carter um, was terribly concerned about that. He did, he did um, uh, describe his own career in terms of that kind of a progress narrative of you know going out into the Arizona desert to write his first string quartet, and then you know gradually developing more and more technical ideas that and refining them in successive pieces to so that his music he described his music as getting. Know, progressively better and better through his early years until he arrived at his mature style. Uh, but in terms of other kinds of politics, I'm not sure. Um, I, I feel like people, besides describing his music as complex, they always, uh, I mean, the word modernism comes up a lot. And uh, can you give me a sense of what that meant to him or if he identified with that term at all um, or how that, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that term, um, I, I mean, he, he was always happy to, uh, you know, once modernism became uh, the kind of generic term that has become for the artists who came of age, you know, in the early part of the 20th century and were active um, in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, and well, I guess, I mean, it goes back, it goes back all the way before that too. And it's, of course, it's different in different arts too. So the, the, po the modernists in poetry might be a little bit earlier than the modernists in music. Uh, no, I think you. I think you know he, he 
probably thought of modernist as a relatively neutral term and wasn't uh, too terribly concerned about uh, being called a modernist. Mm -hmm. uh, John Ashbery, uh, in one of his last poems, writes about modernism coming along historically. Uh, you know, it's 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 okay to be modernist or something like that. <laughs> you know, uh, so I, I you know I think of I think of modernism as being a somewhat a somewhat more neutral term. Um, actually, it's sort of interesting that one of the um, uh, prevailing traits of modernism is a is a kind of obsession with the past. Uh, I think that's true of a lot of uh, of the modern of Stravinsky's neoclassical music, for example, and even of Boulez's music. You know, famously setting out to pulverize Beethoven in the second piano sonata. You know, the, a, a real concern with the past, and I think that that comes up in Carter's music as well, uh, particularly in his late chamber music, uh, which is all for very traditional ensembles, not only the string quartet but piano trio and clarinet quintet and so on. These are all ensembles that would have been very familiar to the composer Mozart today. Um, and so, and I think Carter became increasingly interested in, um, in uh, placing his own uh, achievements in the context of those of his predecessors. And that, that's something, that's another thing I, th I think that's probably um, uh, misconstrued about modernism that it, you know, the, the, the modernists are supposed to be the ones who are always looking to the future and the neoclassicists are the ones looking at the past. But I don't really see that there was very much of a, a difference in terms of um, those composers' interests in the past. Uh, they, were, they were all taking their cues very much from the generations that had preceded them, as I think most creative artists do. That's, that's interesting. I, I feel like I've always really identified with modernism, but like in my life, I generally tend to like disregard history. Like I, I don't have sufficient respect for uh, uh, the past composers, but uh, that's interesting that you say that uh, he's a little bit more concerned with it. So like he's trying to build, or he was trying to build on those traditions. Like what, uh, what sort of lineages uh, would you draw this back to in terms of his modernism? Like Henry Cowell. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it goes back further than that. For example, I mean, uh, Heinz Holliger commissioned him to write a piece for piano and winds, which is for the same instrumentation of, of Mozart's famous quintet for piano and winds, um, which is one of his most amazing pieces, uh, Mozart's most amazing pieces. Um, and then uh, later, Holliger asked him to write an oboe quartet. Of course, Mozart also wrote a very famous oboe quartet. And Carter made reference in various kinds of ways to the earlier pieces uh, that had inspired, uh, inspired his pieces in, in those genres. And in that, he was carrying on a long tradition, right? Of course, Brahms wrote a clarinet quintet and, uh, and, and many other composers sort of in, in the intermediate generations had, um, had, had taken up those earlier models and sort of tested themselves against them. Uh, so, uh, and, and that turns up again and again in Carter's music, there are references to even to people like Gluck in, uh, in the flute concerto. Uh, uh, so I, I think, also I think it's, a, it's partly a, um, a function of age too, mm. um, that, you know, when you're young, you're not very interested in the past. You're interested in making your own mark. And I think Elliot was too. He famously said he was not, he didn't really care very much for 18th and 19th century music when he was growing up. And then as he got older, he began to understand the 
traditions in which he worked uh, a little bit better. And then, uh, you know, his, he changed his tune. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I, I think that's something a lot of people experience, you know, uh, being firebrands and their mavericks in their youth, and then uh, gradually coming to realize that, that, that uh, they don't, maybe not, don't have all the answers and that there have been some pretty talented people on this planet mm -hmm. in past years and centuries and, and people who are, whose music is worth paying attention to. So. Um, in terms of like drawing out the lineage the other way to people who are sort of upholding Carter's legacy these days or like uh, doing something in that similar mindset, uh, who would you think of besides yourself? Well, I, um, I, I'm not sure I would think of specific people. I don't, I don't think there are, uh, I don't think, I, I don't hear very many pieces where I think, oh, they're just, um, you know, they're just imitating Carter. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the other hand, I think just about everyone has been influenced by that conception of, of textural counterpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I hear it. I hear it all the time in all kinds of younger composers' work, and it doesn't necessarily have to be in, in uh, highly chromatic modernist pieces either. Mm -hmm. uh, also, the idea of compelling continuity, which is something that that Carter always talked about, uh, that it was terribly important to, to have a, a, a a, a, a dramatic sense of continuity from beginning to end. And I think that's that's something I hear um, very often in work of younger composers. So I think it's pretty hard to avoid Carter's influence at this point. I think just about all young composers have come across his music at least and, mm -hmm. uh, and respond to it in one way, whether conscious or another, whether consciously or unconsciously, whether they want to honor it or whether they want to destroy it or work against it in their own music. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, so in terms of continuity, um, how, like, how does he break that down? Uh, or like, uh, what are some sort of subsets of continuity? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, that changes um, very much. He talked about um, sometime in the mid 1940s around the time of his, his holiday overture that he began to think in terms of, of continuity yeah, in, in a rather different way from um, the way he had thought about it previously. Uh, and in one sense, it, it means things develop from beginning to end. Uh, in other words, there aren't uh, sort of signposts. I mean, there might, there might be sort of passing moments along the way, but they're always encountered in passing. So they're never, they're never um, you know, definitive goals in the middle of a piece. You're always on your way to something else. And that kind of sense of continuous development is in every one of his pieces, regardless of, of period or style, you know, after the mid-1940s. So pieces as different as the piano sonata and night fantasies, you know, those whole piano pieces, but in completely different styles, mm -hmm. both have that kind of um, uh, engagement with um, with continuous processes of development, something will fade into your uh, into the foreground and be prominent for a while, and then fade out into the background as something else comes in and takes its place. And that uh, interweaving of multiple layers in the current of time, so to speak, um, becomes the dominant sort of formal mode in Carter's music, and that that stays. I mean, it it, it it's realized in many, many, many different ways in different pieces, but it, it's a, it's a, it, it's a, it's a common thread, I think, in just about all of Carter's music. And uh, in terms of like, sort of the elegance of his work, and I feel like there's such like structure to it um, at every layer, like at every scale. Um, 
does that sort of have continuity baked into it? Or, I mean, like, uh, uh, how, where is that like through line between like the structure and the pitch sets? Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's interesting. It is a paradox, right? Because I mean, it, it's the, the paradox of music because music is continuous and yet it's written in these little dots, right? Mm -hmm. These discrete little marks. So um, that's, in, I, I think that's something that um, we all marvel at. You know, that music can be so continuous and yet at the same time it's composed of discrete events. Uh, so um, I, I think that there's that aspect of it, but there's also a, on a little bit larger scale, um, I think Carter was aware of this um, kind of paradox that he was working with discrete collections of pitches, uh, what theorists will call pitch class sets. Um, and yet at the same time, he was concerned with continuity and dramatic change. And that's been a consistent challenge in, in uh, approaching Carter's music analytically. You know, how do you, um, how do you reconcile those two things or how do you model the, that sense of change using essentially discrete tools like pitch class sets? Uh, and that's something I think we're all, uh, we all sort of grapple with as analysts. Um, but for him, it was not, um, I mean, he, 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 that was how he made his music. That was the methodology used in its construction. And I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. it you know, maybe you can think of something that is, um, that's put together with individual bricks, but yet what makes the impression of something that's completely continuous and smooth once it's all finished, you know, like a, a brick wall or something, um, so I, although he worked with these discrete components and investigated them in great detail, he was primarily interested in how they could be used to create the impression of motion. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you one example there. There are some interesting, I've, ju I'm just, I've just finished a book on Carter's late music in which I gra very much grappled with this problem. How do you represent, uh, analytically, how do you represent motion mm -hmm. and continuous change using the kinds of uh, materials and methods that he used, that is these discrete uh, pitch class sets. And I found a number of examples in, in which he, um, he begins with uh, 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 something like an all interval tetrachord, one of these um, signature harmonies that he used again and again throughout his music. And then in the middle of the passage, a few of the notes move away from that into, into other kinds of configurations that are not um, normative or typical or, or uh, the, these usual ones that he uses. And then gradually they'll fade into something else. Those notes will um, be the, um, the, the first glimpses of the next chord that's coming into focus. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the, the, the harmonic focus starts out very sharp and then becomes blurry in the middle of a passage and then gradually shifts to something else and comes back into the focus again. So something that Marguerite Boland calls morphing you know, mm. with the analogy of the visual uh, uh, technique in, in cinema where one face morphs into another, where we all have seen that a million times. So Carter does that kind of thing with the harmony. Um, so it creates the sense of moving gradually from one harmony to another. Um, and I guess that's not such a new idea. I mean, you hear that all the time in Bach's music too, for example, or in Mozart. But, um, but he does it in a way that's very um, much connected with his own personal harmonic style. Uh, so that, that's, that's one kind of technique that he uses. And I think we're just beginning to, to um, 
get a better handle on that and um, and be able to model that sense of dynamic change more effectively. Uh, in his own music, he he just he did it as a matter of course. It was like a second nature to him in manipulating these discrete materials in order to create the impression of motion. Uh, you know, it's, you can think of um, you know a camera with a, a slow shutter speed. Mm. So, and it, you know, the 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 technique in a way is not that different. You're still setting the dials and then pressing the shutter and then developing the image or seeing the image on the back of your phone or whatever it might be. But if you're a professional photographer, you can manipulate those discrete settings to create this blur across the, the, the picture mm -hmm. that creates a very dramatic sense of motion, even though you, it was, you weren't necessarily experiencing motion as you were setting the dials of the camera. Um, that that's, might be a, a good way of, of thinking about the, the difference between the the discrete harmonic materials that he was working with and the impression that he wanted to create um, for in the mind of the listener. Interesting. Um, so I came across your name in the first place by reading through the Harmony book and uh, it, it mentioned that, you know, uh, you brought in this like uh, collection of all the different permutations of all these different sets and it was like a list of like a thousand different sets. Um, and so um, I'm curious, how does one sort of deal with that in a, like deal with that with or like that amount of uh, vocabulary in a way that isn't like completely paralyzing? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I can tell you what Carter did in the case of Night Fantasies. He became interested in this um, uh, this family of, they're essentially 12 tone rows stacked up as chords. So instead of one note after the other in time, you just have a chord that goes all the way from the lowest register to the highest register, mm. one note on top of the other. And then of course you don't play them all at the same time. You just mm. sort of pick and choose which ones. They're sort of like constellations or you know stars blinking at different times from different registers. So he worked out a family of these and there were something like a thousand of them and uh, uh, uh no sorry even, there were even more than even more than that um, and the, 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 these were uh published in an article by bauer mengelberg and ferentz actually 1928 was the number of, of them that wow. they published and then it turned out there were some redundancies on the list that turned <laughs> that uh, had to so the actual number was a little bit lower but not by much so Carter got a copy of this list and it was literally a computer printout from the back of Perspectives of New Music. And he simply wrote them out on staff paper with pencil and staff paper by hand. And he wrote out dozens and dozens of them. He found some that had this property of having the tritone right in the middle and then inversionally related intervals fanning out. So there's a tritone in the middle and then maybe a minor second above and then a major seventh below and then a perfect fifth above and a perfect fourth below or whatever, whatever it is. And his solution to that problem was simply to write them out by hand, which is one reason there is so many thousands of pages of sketches in the Soccer Foundation archive in the Library of Congress. Um, his preferred method for getting to know his materials was to write them out on paper by hand. You know, it's that physical act of writing that, that stimulated his imagination. Um, you know, for myself, I, I prefer to use a computer to, to winnow those possibilities a little mm -hmm. bit or manipulate them that way. Uh, but it, it does ultimately come back to the sound. You know, it's got to sound good. If it sounds good, it is good. That's interesting that, uh, I mean, yeah, to become intimately aware with all that material, uh, I imagine writing out by hand would be helpful. But so there's no, there's no shortcut. There's no, like, he decided that these sets are more beautiful than these sets. Is there kind of like a, an arbitrariness to it? 
I don't know. I mean, I think of, I think he very often had a technical starting point. Like, for example, in Night Fantasies, there's uh, excuse me, one collection of these cores. He noticed that there were a whole bunch of them that had a major second at the top, you know, as the top interval. So then, he, you know, that, that's a technical observation of, about a characteristic of this group of chords. But then the question becomes, well, what can you do that with that musically to make music out of it? And so what he decided to do was say, well, we'll, we'll keep those two notes as common tones and they'll, they'll sort of oscillate back and forth like a like a bird call or something. And then all the other notes will fan out from there. And he started with the ones that are narrowest in range. And then gradually the, the lower ones get lower and lower while the top ones stay the same. So all, you know, all of that is a, a kind of, uh, it's technically interesting, but what really makes that passage so remarkable is how musically effective it is and how, how beautifully fluid it is to have this sort of bird call of two notes oscillating back and forth seemingly at random mm -hmm. and then the other notes sort of gradually exploring this other harmony and then the whole field of pitches gradually expanding as though you know taking in ever more um, physical space on the piano and of course picking up the red more resonance as you go lower on the instrument um, so there I, I mean and I think that's that when people asked him about, you know, how, how do you think about the technique and connection with the expression, he, he always seemed to be a little bit perplexed about the, uh, by the question, because for him, it was it was like breathing. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the whole point of these technical observations and speculations was expressive, was to was to stimulate an expressive idea. Um, and and that's why I mean he was interested in those patterns in the abstract, but what he was really interested in was making music with them. Mm -hmm. And it's not so different, I suppose, from making music with major scales and triads. You know, um, all composers have the material that they work with, and then they you know manipulate it imaginatively. Uh, and that that's absolutely what Carter did. Just as it, it, it is what I think most most um, uh, really gift brilliant composers do. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious if you're you're in New York City, are you familiar with the guitarist Ben Monder? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, it, ben is like my, my favorite guitarist period. And uh, back in the day when I was in uh, music school, uh, I basically like reached out to him to see if I could study with him. He sent me an email that's like, you know, here's to, some stuff to practice. And it was basically just like permutations of four note chords and that I feel like that email was just so potent in like, you know, here's the possibility space of permutations. And um, so I'm, I'm really interested in exhaustiveness. Uh, so like yeah. the idea that Elliot Carter had this huge list of materials uh, is kind of interesting because that's, you know, that's more than just like permuting four note chords. Uh, yeah, I mean, he did, he worked out the, the set classes basically, you know, there's a, and that's, that's all just, if you have, if you have, 12 different notes, right? And, and the intervals that are in equal temperament, uh, you know, the, the number of possible three note or four note chords is fixed mathematically by the numbers um, and the relationships. And that's been well known for, for a century or more. Um, but, it, but Carter worked it out himself. He kind of, he, he figured out, worked through all of the permutations himself to prove to himself that there were 12 trichords and 29 tetrachords, et cetera. Um, and he did that around the same time that um, there was a kind of revival of interest in set theory in the uh, late 60s uh, around Yale, for example, where Alan Ford and Donald Martino were both teaching. Uh, 
So, and of course, Milton Babbitt had figured that out too mm -hmm. around the same time. They were all kind of working on on the, on these issues. Um, and and as I said, they actually the those kinds of questions had been solved already in the early part of the 20th century by you know a couple of generations earlier. So this was actually a revival of, of older knowledge. But but that was something that that Carter was interested in too. This sort of exhaustive, you know, how many possibilities are there? Or, you know, what is every possible way of doing something? And that enters. I think it enters into his compositional process. I'm less convinced that it. Um, is a, a key element of his pieces. I think he was always perfectly content to, you know, once he had found all, you know, whatever it was, whatever 10 possibilities, he was perfectly content to leave out two or three of them if it didn't suit the needs of, of a given passage or a given piece. I don't think he felt the, felt compelled to include every single one for completeness's sake. Mm -hmm. I think he, he felt compelled to find them all to make sure he had all the possible, the possible options you know, at hand, but then when he actually wrote the piece, um, I don't think he necessarily felt compelled to use every one of them. Do you think it would be fair to say that, like, going back to the question of uh, Boulez versus Carter, um, it, Elliot Carter seems to have more of an or organic sort of, like, intuitive feel about it, and maybe Boulez would be the person that has to include that set to make it perfect and <laughs> complete? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't have a good working knowledge of, of Boulez's, um, the technical workings of Boulez's music, but I, I'm always a little bit skeptical of those intuitive versus non-intuitive mm -hmm. um, arguments because it, it seems to me it's all it's always intuitive in one way or another. Right. Sure. And, and even uh, even the most uh, mechanically applied system you, is ultimately evaluated by the composers whether it's produced something that's worthwhile or interesting to listen to. Mm -hmm. uh, and if it if it hasn't produced that, then I, I you know then it, probably the composers can go back to the drawing board and find another way of doing it. But again, you know there 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 was a great deal of politics involved in you know when Boulez was first making his name as a composer in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War in Europe when you know, there, were, um, an, there was an awful lot of money and an awful lot of very powerful forces uh, being brought to bear on, on music making in Europe. Um, so that it was all very much, I think, colored by, uh, by the, those, pol the, the, those politics at the time. Uh, but no, I, I, think, I think both Boulez and Carter have a, have a very sort of organic a sense of flow in their music, mm -hmm. um, particularly, you know, in, from, in Boulez's case, a piece like um, Derive One, Derive Un, of, uh, that, uh, based on the Sacher hexachord, uh, but yet having a wonderful sense of, of musical flow and development and a very, very mm -hmm. um, uh, transparent kind of ABA form. It's a lovely piece and, and, uh, and, and very beautiful and, um, and, it, it, the, the last thing in the world you would think of is systematic, mm -hmm. you know, when you're listening to it, it doesn't, uh, it's, it's something that's systematic is, I, it's compelling in a way, right? But it's not something you want to go and listen to at a concert, right? You, if the composer has a system or a systematic approach to, you know, developing material or seeing what the possibilities are, that's fine. But, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but that's not, that's not ultimately, that's not what the audience is going to be listening to. Gotcha. So, I mean, it's not going to—it's not going to guarantee a good piece or you know uh, prevent a bad one. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Um, so I feel like we've been talking about Carter as like a, a harmonic composer, um, but like I've always thought of him as very much like a rhythmic composer, but uh, I, I like to sort of say they're all the same thing, man, uh, uh, because they're, <laughs> they're essentially just like temporal content. Uh, so I'm curious if he had any sort of unified sense like that, where it's like, you know, a triad is a, a very, very fast polyrhythm, you know? Oh yeah, no, I, I don't think so. I don't think he was interested in that. And, and uh, I, I think probably be, the, the reason for that is that um, because the um, effects of different speeds or tempi are so different, mm -hmm. you know, when you're, when you're moving at the speed of um, the vibrations that we perceive as pitch, those effects are completely different, you know. Or just take the example: if you have a, a pulse that's going at a at a speed that you know you find on the metronome, it's going to have it's it's going to be naturally entrained, and we're going to hear it as a steady pulse, and so on. If you take it much much slower, then it becomes um, very. There becomes a point where it's no longer entrainable. You know, mm -hmm. you no longer recognize the pulses as being equidistant. Or conversely, you um, you can have pulses that are not equally spaced based in time, but that sound as though they are mm -hmm. because they're far enough apart and they're written perhaps in the low register played mm -hmm. by pizzicato double bass or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't think he was interested in, in that, the continuity of vibration. Actually, Andrew Mead, who's a theorist who's written quite a bit about Carter's music, he's very interested in that. And he's written, um, uh, he's introduced a kind of notational system in which uh, polyrhythms are notated as pitches on the staff. So the ratio of three to two is notated as a perfect fifth because that's the ratio of the, the vibrations of the pitches and so on. But I don't, I don't think Carter was terribly interested in that. What he was terribly interested in was in rhythmic continuity and rhythmic structure. Uh, and at various times in his career, he did different kinds of things. Um, I uh, wrote a dissertation about his uh, large scale polyrhythmic pieces of, that uh, got started in the late seventies and early eighties in which he would take uh, a rather elaborate polyrhythm uh, as a kind of rhythmic skeleton for the piece and then divide those those pulses which were several seconds apart divide them into uh, uh, into faster uh, kinds of streams in different ways that would interact contrapuntally in different ways um, and that music is, is really quite fascinating uh, because of the the fluidity of motion that it uh, it, it uh, makes possible so yeah that that uh, i mean there's a, a lot uh, a lot going on in carter's rhythm definitely mm -hmm. Um, I'm sort of curious, uh, it, how would you evaluate the performance of his music in general? Because I mean, like, I know that, like, I'm, I'm more of a jazz musician, but uh, I, I've definitely sort of witnessed classical musicians who I'm like, ooh, like, I'm not sure about your, your sense of time here. And <laughs> music as complicated as Carter's, uh, I'm just like wondering how, how well that, that's executed in real, reality. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, that, that's, that, you know, I guess one always wonders that a, a little bit, but um, Carter was, was blessed to have um, a very, very dedicated group of performers who were attracted to his music and who worked very hard to play it convincingly and effectively. Um, so I think actually the, particularly on, on the recordings of Carter's music that have been available, you know, for, for decades now, those performances are generally quite good and to communicate very effectively, um, as he put it, things that are notated in a rather curious way. Mm -hmm. uh, and just to give you one example, you know, if you look at the music on the page, it looks as though it's quite syncopated in, 
in relation to the notated meter, mm-hmm. right? If you imagine, you know, in four four time, and then you have um, an attack every five sixteenth notes. Well, the the first if the first one is on the first beat, the second mm-hmm. one is going to be on the second sixteenth of the second beat. So it's going to seem like a syncopation relative to the notated beat. Mm-hmm. But then what you see is that there every note is five sixteenth notes after the previous one. So what you actually have is a steady pulse. Uh, or a musical pulse that's got to have a little bit of give and take and rubato as all music does mm-hmm. to some extent. But at the same time, um, it, it has to sound as though it's, it's a slightly fluctuating regular pulse. So it introduces um, all kinds of performance practice issues uh, that you really have to be aware of. You can't play it just mechanically regular. You can't accent every note because it's supposed to be a phrase but yet it's written in the notation that appears to be syncopated with respect to the notated meter. So fortunately, I think most performers have now sorted that out in Carter's mm-hmm. music, and, and you almost always hear that, that done uh, very effectively in, in, in most recordings. Um, but it never stays regular for very long. That's the thing. So mm-hmm. performers constantly have to evaluate you know, where the accent should be, where the phrase begins, where the, the, the metaphorical breath it has to be in the music. Mm-hmm. And Carter almost always gives you very, very clear indications in the notation to help you figure that out, but you still have to, you still have to work that out. I had a very interesting conversation um, with one of the members of the Jack Quartet who are, are just recording all five of the quarter Carter string quartets now. And he had found a place uh, where there was a regular stream of pulses every so many notes, and then one place where it was it was off by one or two. And he was asking, you know, could this be a typo or was this a mistake in the manuscript and so on? So I went and I looked up the sketches, which are in, on the Library of Congress website, and found that no, no, he had intentionally, you know, he had written it that way. And, and then, then of course, that raises the issue: well, why is that one shorter? What what? What's the musical expressive intent behind mm-hmm. that? I mean, it's a, it's a mechanical fact, but it's why is the you know does the phrase suddenly contract there? Is there a, some some momentary speed up of uh, of of energy on that in that uh, player's part and so on? So then you have to sort of decipher how that works, and of course you multiply that by you know all, all of the notes that there are in a Carter <laughs> piece, and it's a challenge. Um, but fortunately, I think performers are, are, uh, are attracted to challenges and the rewards in the case of Carter's music are very great indeed. So I think his music is in, in good hands these days. That's, that's good to hear. I mean, I, I, I guess I have uh, insufficient faith in uh, performance, <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm curious, does anybody uh, like practice along with MIDI's? Like has anybody put them into MIDI to like sort of have a, a perfected uh, execution of it to refer to? Yeah, I, uh, I think people have done that at various times and probably the, the more uh, common thing is for uh, string quartets to do pieces like the third quartet with a click track. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but you have to be extremely careful because the Carter's music is almost never metronomically um, regular in that way. In fact, in the third string quartet, it's the the uh, underlying conception is that one of the duos plays with a kind of exaggerated metronomical regularity, a kind of um, overly fastidious, you know, like the Felix Unger of the odd couple, and then the other duo is um, plays with a great deal of give and take and and feeling of rubato. Mm-hmm. 
So it, it's a very complicated thing. And to try to um, have a click track um, follow those kind, that kind of ebb and flow of energy is, I, to my mind, is never terribly effective. And I've never been, um, I've never been entirely persuaded that those um, performances done with the click track are as effective as those done by quartets that um, take the time to really learn how to do it without a click track and internalize that 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 fluctuating sense of pulse that is, I think, to my mind, what music is really all about. Um, do you have any sort of uh, insider tips for internalizing uh, like those metric modulations and that type of thing? Um, I don't. Uh, I mean, I don't perform Carter's music myself, which is mm -hmm. maybe why I'm uh, so uh, so why I can talk about it so easily because <laughs> I don't have to actually right. do it. My, but uh, no, for the metric modulations, I think it's a matter of breaking it down and counting it out, you know, subdividing it down to the common division, and then practicing regrouping those divisions into the new into the new node values. And there's always a way to do it. There's always something that's that's giving that to you. He's always extremely careful about that. A very, very rarely does a, a, a speed change without uh, something to, um, uh, to to guide it through that change in the music. Um, and very often those changes are uh, completely transparent to the listener. You know, it sounds as though well, the change will come only after the metric modulation has occurred because at the moment of the metric modulation, the measure before and the measure after, sound identical they're just notated differently right so that gives you a bridge from one to the other uh, but yeah I, I think there's always a way if you if you break it down and subdivide it you, you can find a way to to make that connection gotcha. to make it it, at the end of the day though it's, it's still painstaking yeah i think so i think learning all music is painstaking you know right. learning to perform is painstaking you know you you always Carter always used to say that um, he wanted his music to sound as though it were improvised in the moment by the performers, and I think that's in general. I think that's true, right? We're most we find it most compelling when you know uh, when when Figaro really seems to be at his wits' end, you know, with the, the count at the beginning of Marriage of Figaro, you know, or where you know Zerlina is really starting to fall for Don Giovanni. You know, we want we want to we want to believe that these things are happening right before our eyes. And I think it's the same in instrumental music. We want it to be uh, taking place in the moment and seem as though it's just spontaneous. Mm -hmm. And um, in the case of, of more difficult and complicated music like Mozart, <laughs> um, it takes a considerable amount of effort on the part of the performers in order to achieve that sense of naturalness, right? I, mean, I think of um, stand-up comedians mm -hmm. who, if you've ever seen a film about stand-up, a really, really great stand-up comedians as they practice their craft, you can see there's just a tremendous amount of preparation that goes into, you know, the offhand gesture or when, when you look up or when your head moves or, you know, it's just incredible how, how much care that they will put into um, crafting a performance in order to make it sound completely or seem completely natural in the moment. And I, I wonder if music is somewhat similar. Um, I remember reading that he still into his you know, late age was composing every morning. Um, it, was there like a sort of repetitive practice like that uh, akin to the comedian that you think had to do with the success? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, he sometimes would say that his first thoughts about uh, something were often incredibly bad. He was mm -hmm. embarrassed at how long it took him to develop things. But I don't think that's so much true in his later years. But yeah, he did. He did take enormous care to refine things to get them into the, the clearest possible state. Uh, I think most composers do that, actually. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that was, in general, that was his routine. He liked to work in the morning and then it would work as long as he could and then break for lunch and then the, the rest of the day would be occupied with other things. Particularly as he got older, right? You have limited energy and uh, stamina uh, as you get older. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he, he, he took that as a matter of course, as a, as a constraint that he had to work around uh, and figure out how to deal with um, the same way you have to deal with everything else, like getting your car fixed and your laundry done and so on. Do you think that his sort of uh, sensitivity to rhythm or like rhythmic complexity uh, impacted how he saw like circadian rhythms? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, people have commented on how he was, he was a very sort of kind and gentle uh, mm -hmm. soul, um, although he could, uh, he had a had a very sharp wit when, when necessary. Um, but um but I don't know, but, but people have often commented on how different a person he was than his music, right? Because his music is often very violent and aggressive and angry or uh, turning on a dime and, and highly um, varied and explosive and so on. And yet he wasn't at all like that. So I wonder if it wasn't something like that uh, when it came to um, his life's rhythm and the rhythm of his music. Although I will say, you know, he did, um, he had bouts of insomnia that he wrote about. Uh, and a, a surprising number of his late pieces are concerned with the sunrise, hmm. um, which of course is also a, a recurring theme in the, in the late work of a lot of poets and, art and authors, um, you know, who, because that is, you know, if night is a metaphor for death, then the sunrise and the new day is a metaphor for continuing life and for not being dead right mm -hmm. so um, i think that's also part of it and and that that aspect of circadian rhythms is uh, is quite pervasive in his particularly i mean in his vocal music his late vocal music I feel like uh, in trying to schedule this podcast meeting with you, I just was trying to like make polyrhythmic, polyrhythmic jokes about time and stuff, uh, but uh, <laughs> I stopped myself. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, so you mentioned his uh, his disposition. I'm curious, like, what what's his secret there? Because he seems he seemed very jolly, and uh, I mean, just always in good spirits. Uh, what's the deal? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he. Uh, I think some people are just. Uh, by nature optimistic mm -hmm. and he was as well and i mean part of that was he he um he led a fairly privileged life mm -hmm. um he uh generally did not want for um uh, uh, uh the, the necessities of life right um so he always had enough money for uh, for food clothing and shelter and to uh and, and didn't have to worry about where his next meal was coming from um, so that, that gave him the leisure time necessary to, uh, to write the music he did and also possibly, I suppose, it, it contributed to his outlook on life. Uh, but, you know, there are plenty of, of people born into similar or even more luxurious circumstances who are pretty sour and unhappy. So, 
Um, I don't think that's necessarily, there's necessarily a causal relationship there. Um, and he wasn't always, I mean, he could be rather, uh, he could be rather short with people and, um, and uh, uh, wasn't always uh, in a cheerful, happy mood. Um, there was one time I was sitting with him in Tanglewood in 2008 when the 100th birthday festival uh, was going on. And um, he was attending a rehearsal in the shed and I was sitting next to him and turning pages on the score for him. And the light was not very good in the shed and he was having trouble seeing the score. And he became quite despondent and said under his breath, I, I shouldn't have even come, you know, just really feeling mm. terrible about it. And so I said, signal to somebody, could we please get a lamp or a light so that we can put it on the score? And then a few minutes later, uh, one of the Tanglewood students appeared with an enormous flashlight about this long, mm -hmm. you know, one of these things that, you know, industrial strength flashlight, turned it on and shined, stood behind us and shined it on the score. And then instantly, Elliot completely changed his mood, completely changed. He suddenly was totally engaged, focused, and, um, and, and immediately started making comments about the music, quite remarkable. Uh, comments that improved the performance dramatically. So, uh, so he wasn't always cheerful uh, if he had reason not to be, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, the Tanglewood student who had taken the initiative to uh, find a flashlight and bring it over and, and stand there and hold it for a while, turned out to be Eric Nathan, who's now quite a well-known composer in oh, New England. And, I'm not, I'm uh, so so that, that, that was a kind of, and I, I asked uh, Eric and I, were trading Carter stories one day and we both told that same story and looked at each other and he said, that was you? And he said, that was you? And he had he had a photograph someone had taken of the, oh. of the scene of the three wow. of us with Eric Eric shining the light. So <laughs> That's great. It's, it's a small world mm -hmm. in music. Um, you saying taking a picture of the scene makes me think of uh, auditory scenes and that's that's an idea that he was interested in, right? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of his um, a lot of his music is, in a way, modeled on the uh, you know late Romantic tone poems, and you know th thinking of uh, you know Richard Strauss and uh, Ein Heldenleben is not the kind of the first thing you usually think about with Carter, but mm -hmm. um, uh, an awful lot of his music is kind of uh, based on that. if you think about the Concerto for Orchestra and the, the uh, connection with uh, Saint John Peirce's poem Winds, uh, even though. You know, in some cases, those associations came about later after the piece had already been written. Uh, but or a symphony of three orchestras, which was very much modeled on the idea of continuous descents of various kinds and connecting that with the life of the poet Hart Crane. So in a way, that piece became a kind of tone poem. Um, so, yeah, those auditory and he, there's a famous quote about um, in which he's talking about the divided ensemble and the, and the way he thought of instruments as characters, like mm. characters in a play, uh, where he does talk about, uh, where, where he does talk about that. So, uh, think of it, thinking of his scores as auditory scenarios uh, that the players enact with their instruments. So yeah, I think that that's a that's a fair comparison. Although of course, you know, it's always uh, risky when you start comparing music to visual arts. Mm -hmm. or to or to literatures. Um, so I, I'm curious to get into some of your composition and uh, 
I guess like your strategies, approaches, sort of like your aesthetic values that uh, guide your work um, and maybe dig into some set theory stuff as well. I assume that that's important to you in your work. Uh, I suppose, I suppose, in a way, I, or maybe I pretend it is, or something, or maybe that's what I use to get going on a piece, or something. I don't know. It's 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 always hard to you know to to um, step step back and judge your own creative process. But mm -hmm. um, uh, but yeah, I mean, my own personal uh, musical journey started playing electric bass in rock bands. So my first, you know, just as um, uh, you know, Carter talked about hearing Stravinsky's Rite of Spring is what made him want to be a composer. Um, I think what got me going in music was, you know, listening to Jimi Hendrix mm -hmm. and Sly and the Family Stone and Bob Marley, and um, which, of course, is a completely different right. <laughs> sort of uh, generation. And then I came to classical music, so-called classical music, only, only somewhat later uh, when I was in high school and college. Um, uh, what I guess, like, uh, how would you define your compositional approach, or not necessarily define, oh, but like, uh, in terms of like, yeah, how you think? I mean, I'm just curious to get a flavor of how you think about composition. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's. I mean, I think I have the same kind of experience that I think a lot of composers do, which is very being very focused on the pragmatic issues involved with writing a particular piece. Mm -hmm. Uh, for example, um, I wrote a piece called For Irving Lapel, which is for vibraphone and guitar. Mm -hmm. And so the question there was immediately, well, those two instruments are so different from one another. How can they blend? How can they uh, either either blend together or how can I use the lack of blend as a dramatic element? And then, okay, well, how much of their ranges overlap and you know, which one has notes above and below the other? And um, well, the vibraphone can sustain notes with the pedal probably longer than the guitar, but the guitar has got an amplifier. So there are all of these kinds of pragmatic um, issues that um, one has to deal with. And, um, and and so whatever aesthetic ideas one has have to have to um, happen within those constraints or working with those mm -hmm. those uh, pragmatic constraints. So that's how I always that's how I always begin. And I'm not sure I'm not sure I have a kind of overarching aesthetic. Um, I, I mean the the desire is always to write something that's as compelling as possible. And maybe that's one thing that I've gotten from Carter is the idea of dramatic continuity being the, the primary goal um, in writing a piece. It has to it has to really make compelling sense from beginning to end in the sense of uh, engaging the audience, keeping them wondering what's going to happen next. Um, so that I think I always try to put myself in the in the position of the listener who's hearing this piece for the first time, mm -hmm. and. Um, how, how are they going to respond and how can I both, um, you know, confirm their expectations based on what's happened earlier and at the same time surprise them in places and, um, you know, uh, and let, let them be kind of in on the joke because there's, uh, there's some, something comical that happens. Uh, so that I, I mean, those are those are kind of very vague general ideas about mm -hmm. things. But I, I and then I, I suppose you're right. There is a a kind of often there's a kind of harmonic um, uh, idea, or often a family of chords, for example, that I'm interested in exploring or uh, or using in a different way. And then I just begin to experiment. I I tend not to be the kind of composer who 
starts with a large scale formal structure and then composes the individual sections to the spec. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I tend to prefer to um, to try out lots of different things at a, at a smaller scale level to try and come up with compelling gestures or interesting uh, sort of things for the instruments to do. Um, and then at some point along the way, as I've developed uh, kind of um, uh, drafts of various little bits and pieces, then begin to think about how all, why I thought of all of these in connection with this piece and what that means for how they should all hang together and what kind of story they can be uh, brought to tell. Uh, so then I'll, I'll begin to, I kind of begin to work out the, the larger scale picture kind of as I go, as I develop the smaller ideas. Um, but not always, sometimes in some pieces, I, you know, for, for example, in some vocal pieces, I, I'll take a, a copy of the poem that I'm setting and do it triple spaced across the page and just start doing doodles along with certain words, you know, something big happens here or a big attack or, or an accent or a bunch of little dots to have a kind of, um, you know, texture like, uh, uh, you know, like gnats in the air or something. Um, and then, and then try to, um, not exactly right to that spec. It's not much of a spec, but uh, but then try to come up with um, specifics that will create that impression, the impression left by my little doodles. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so it varies, I think, a little bit. And of course, it's very different in pieces. I'm writing a piece now for cello and uh, two-channel audio, which has a, a, a fixed media component. You know, mm-hmm. And, um, and so then there are all kinds of interesting things that happen as I'm generating the audio part, uh, thinking about how that will work with a live performer and um, how, how, um, how the little uh, the drafts that I make, how they can fit together and so on. Um, so uh, I listened to Irv- uh, for Irving LaPelle and it's a, a wonderful, beautiful piece. Uh, and I'm curious, do you play guitar at all? Like, uh, do you have uh, guitar chops? <laughs> Well, uh, not much, not really. I mean, I'm, I'm an electric bass player, so I, I'm used to four strings and, and even I sort of learned electric bass before five string bass it became popular. So I still am more comfortable on a four string bass. So I'm two, two strings short when it comes to guitar. But when I was writing that piece, I do have a, uh, an acoustic guitar here. So I did, you know, for everything that um, was a little bit tricky technically, I tried to make sure to pick up the guitar and, mm-hmm. and find the notes to see what it would be like to, to you know, to make those physical moves. And um, actually what I found was I, I did that much more in the early parts of writing the piece than in the later parts. And then it turned out that the, you know, once I had gotten going on the piece, some of the things that I did that I wasn't sure were going to work technically turned out to be just fine. Mm. Because by that point, I was, I was starting to hear things in terms of uh, what was idiomatic on the guitar. Um, and so that was a, that was a pleasant, uh, a pleasant experience. And I think that that's something, again, that I think a lot of composers have, you know, who might not be harpists or French horn players, right. for example, but who develop a kind of intuitive feel for what works on the instrument, uh, particularly as they get more and more experience. Uh, me being a guitarist, like I, I oftentimes talk about how much I hate the instrument or I hate guitarisms. <laughs> like I, I really don't like idiomatic guitar playing for some reason um but i'm also i'm super impressed by people's ability to compose for classical guitar in particular and have it work out very nicely so uh yes yeah. yeah, that's interesting um is yeah so, you- i mean it's 
I'm sorry, it's a very hard instrument to write for idiomatically guitar. I mean, just notoriously difficult to, uh, if you're not a guitar, if you're not a fl really fluent guitarist, it's really very, very hard to make it sound as though it were written by a guitar player. Is there a way that you sort of stay engaged with how, like the intricacies of how to write for different instruments or do you have favorite instruments or like, do you figure it out when you need to? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, a lot of a composer's career is uh, is determined by the opportunities that come your way and the people that you meet and the, the people who uh, are interested in playing your music. Uh, so that uh, I, I had the good fortune to have a close friend when I was in college who was a clarinetist. So I ended up writing quite a lot of clarinet music. Uh, uh, and it, that's uh, always been an instrument I've written for uh, sort of with special affection. But I wouldn't say I have favorite instruments. I think it's like asking an artist if they have favorite colors. You know, it's mm -hmm. you you there are tools in the tool or a carpenter, which is your favorite chisel. You know, mm -hmm. it's kind of your your objective is a musical objective, and so the instruments are, uh, you know, you have love and affection for all of them, but ultimately they're they're how you tell the story, uh, and. The, uh, I mean, maybe that's a little bit misleading. I guess the, the sound of the instruments is so much a part of how you tell the story. Mm -hmm. You know, the sound of a clarinet in its lowest register versus the sound of a clarinet in its highest register, mm -hmm. or or an English horn in the same register, and and um, how those things can be used um, to 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 tell a story or in a compelling, dramatic way. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of it is sort of tricks of the trade that you pick up from from listening to different pieces and talking to different composers. Uh, you know, the very lowest register of the bass clarinet, you can overblow, I mean, not overblow, but sort of override the sound and create a very intense crescendo. And Carter uses that in the triple duo. And I think a lot of composers have picked up on that idea. Uh, I had an, an interesting conversation with David Del Tredici, who's a composer I'm very fond of, actually. Uh, he was getting ready to write for double bass and he knew I was a bass player. So he said, so tell me about double bass. Tell me about things that are, you can do on double bass. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you know, you've got the harmonics, of course. He said, oh yeah, I mean, everybody knows about those harmonics. <laughs> you want to know about the other thing, you know, the, you know, the, the secrets. What a double bass player really know how to do. But they, uh, so there, there's that aspect of it too. I think composers always want to want to learn from instrumentalists. Um, what their instruments are capable of doing. So, um, so uh, when we were talking about the the sheets of uh, you know different sets and stuff, and how you prefer to use the computer over uh, Elliot using uh, like just by hand methods of cataloging, um, I'm curious what sort of technological stuff you use these days uh, to aid in your composition, if any, like um, sure. notation software, um, sort of like the practical stuff, um, if MIDI stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. I'll tell you a great story. And that is when I was in graduate school, I had a computer music class with Charles Dodge, who was a pioneer of computer music. And he said, he told us at the time that um, that he did everything still in Fortran, because that, that was what he had learned on, and he knew how to use it. And he thought of it as a tool that he used to accomplish the what he was, was trying to accomplish. And he wasn't necessarily concerned with, um, you know, learning a new tool just to be learning the tool. He, he, it was, it was, it, it was the tool that was working for him that let him make the music he wanted to make. And I remember thinking to myself, oh gosh, what an old fuddy-duddy. He doesn't even want to learn C, you know, which was the, 
the hotter programming language at the time, right? And now I find myself in exactly the same position as Charles mm -hmm. Dodge was in then. You know, I find that I I stick with the tools that I learned years ago because they accomplish what I want to accomplish in my pieces. So, um, you know, if you live long enough, you become an old fuddy-duddy. That was one thing that I took <laughs> away from that experience. Uh, so um, my... Uh, my methodology, to, it depends on what kind of piece I'm working on. If I'm working on a piece like, uh, for example, I did a clarinet concerto. So I thought it would be fun to do a MIDI prototype of that using, you know, synthesizer sounds. And I, you know, you can go, you can really go all out on this if you want to. And there are, you know, composers in, in Hollywood, for example, who do film scoring, who do incredibly elaborate things with synthesized and sample libraries mm -hmm. of, of orchestral instruments and so on. Uh, I did none of that. I simply took the Garreton Personal Orchestra, uh, you know, the sort of, I think it was the standalone version, not, not the one that comes with Finale, but, mm -hmm. you know, the, the standalone version, which, um, I, I had I had already, and I used that to generate a MIDI prototype, um, which I, I still to this day I think I, I find it helpful uh, and interesting and interesting to to use those MIDI prototypes, provided you are very circumspect about what you're hearing, mm -hmm. um, because there are a couple of things that they do not give you, and, and um, I mean one is the give and take of phrasing that human beings will do without thinking about it mm -hmm. to make things more musical. And so it can be rather difficult to, um, to judge the effect of um, uh, certain kinds of effects of ebbing and flowing of phrasing uh, using the MIDI prototype. Uh, and I think probably the most important thing that you lose is the three-dimensionality of acoustic instruments. Mm -hmm. You know, if you imagine you've got an orchestra and there's a, a solo for the violin for the concert master sitting at the front of the stage, and then you've got a distant horn call, you know, coming from the horn at the back of the stage. If you put both of those into, into a synthesizer or sample library, they'll go like this and they'll slam together and you'll hear them on, on one um, sort of horizontal or sort of one one depth plane, mm. whereas if you hear them in a concert hall, it sounds like they're it sounds like they're coming from different physical environments, different rooms, different geographies, one over the hill and one right next to you, and so on. And that's that is true of every composition for acoustic instruments. So uh, the MIDI prototypes encourage a kind of flattening out of the musical space, which is I think very detrimental if you're not careful. Um, then for other pieces, I, you know, for example, I did, I did a percussion ensemble piece recently, um, and uh, it, it, it called Bonkers, because mm. uh, I feared the percussions were bonking on things. So it was for Glenn Vela, who's a fabulous hand percussionist, um, and the New Jersey Percussion Ensemble. And um, there I was writing for a whole, I mean, the, the kitchen sink worth of instruments, because the New Jersey Percussion Ensemble has access to just about everything. So. Um, I, I, I tried to be somewhat restrained, but, you know, if you've ever written a piece for percussion, you, you know that um, when you start out trying to be restrained, the next thing you know before you realize that you've got the, you know, the whole, uh, the whole library of percussion instruments, thousands of pounds worth. Uh, 
so for that piece, it, you know, doing a MIDI prototype was just not practical. It would have just taken so much technical overhead to get all of the sounds loaded in and consistent with the notation program and so on. So I didn't even bother. I just wrote that without a, a prototype at all. Uh, and that was an interesting uh, experience too, because it, um, it sort of, um, it, you know, MIDI enforces a certain kind of um, honesty on you. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, if you're just sort of listening to the sounds in your head, it's easy to uh, uh, it's easy to tell yourself that's what's on the page, even when maybe it's not being communicated as effectively as it might be. Uh, and MIDI will give you um, an absolutely unfeeling uh, uh, truth about how long notes last right. and um, harmonic relationships and so on. But, but even there, you know. The, the three-dimensionality is hard, you know. If you've got a chord of six notes and three of them are played by an instrument that's going to have a totally different timbre than the other three, then the harmony changes based on um, the the physical space on the stage, you know. So that's that's another whole other issue. But um, uh, but uh, but doing it without a MIDI prototype was uh, was was quite helpful because it really forced me to to be um, extremely careful about. Um, uh, filling in those kinds of um, uh, bad experience of the of the uh, unfolding of the piece uh, in in my head, rather than um, relying on the MIDI to mm -hmm. uh, to do it. I, um, but yeah, I feel like uh, you know, I towards the end of college, I was studying guitar, and I eventually started studying Max MSP, and that was sort of the point at which I was like. Guitar is a, a silly instrument, but I've, I've come back around to it. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm very interested in these like simulations with MIDI and like prototyping. And so these days I'm working on a project that's like uh, an algorithmic death metal band basically. And uh, I've just been simulating everything with MIDI, but uh, I'm, I'm sort of curious uh, on a practical note, if you can direct me towards any sort of cutting edge music theory that would inform my set theoretic uh, algorithmic, uh, algorithmic death metal. Oh yeah, oh boy. Um, well, uh, Guy Capuzzo has written an article about, um, about a death metal band that uses uh, extremely, I mean, what I think it's called math rock that uses all kinds of um, little subdivisions. Meshuggah? Uh, yeah, Meshuggah. He's written several articles about Meshuggah uh, and their approach to rhythm, uh, which might be of interest, you know, just as you're thinking of uh, algorithmic ideas, ideas for algorithms, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that ties into it, I guess I, I should say, my use of technology is completely different when I'm doing one of these pieces for live instrument and fixed media, mm -hmm. two-channel audio. Um, in that case, all, all of the, um, the audio part is composed of samples of the instrument, um, mm -hmm. of the instrumentalists playing. So the piece becomes a kind of dialogue between the live performer and his or her own recorded image, which um, I think raises all kinds of very, very interesting questions about identity and so on, uh, which then I try to explore in the pieces. Uh, but my methodology there is to generate things algorithmically, uh, to generate um, um, little uh, fragments of music algorithmically. And I, the, the constraint I set myself was that I was going to use only samples of the live instrument and not manipulate them in any way except um, the attack, you know, occasionally fading into an instrument that has a, has a, 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 a shorter attack and decay, you know, fading them out sometimes. 
uh, but I was not going to do any pitch shifting. I was not going to do any time stretching. It was just yeah. going to be purely the sound of the acoustic instruments. And what I found is even with that constraint, the range of um, possible things you can do is extraordinary. Um, and so I, I then take those little bits of material and then they're uh, generated algorithmically and then manipulate them into kind of collages, cut and paste them into collages so that they end up being um, extremely uh, determined by my own intuitive preferences mm. uh, and not at all algorithmic. Uh, so there's that, uh, that kind of mix as well. And also of course that, you know, an algorithm is only a, a, as good or bad or interesting as the inputs that right. go into it and, and how it's written, right? So an algorithm is a human thing, I guess is the way I would say it. So, uh, sorry, let me uh, just uh, get my head around this. So in making this piece, you're having the performer play notes and then you take that and algorithmically process it? Or uh, is there like you're feeding them notes that then... Uh... It, well, it's both. I mean, just in terms of the practicality of it, we have a recording session at the beginning okay. of the process. And I just record them playing individual notes all over the entire instrument. It okay. ends up being a rather grueling process. And I'm trying to figure out ways. So it's not like phrases, it's just like uh, notes? Individual notes. Okay. It's individual notes in all different kinds of stuff. Like for this cello piece, it was long notes, short notes, pizzicato notes, okay. snap pizzicato notes, tremolos. So, you know, sometimes tremolos, but it's, uh, it's different as it gets. And then I'll assemble them all into a library and essentially write a, a sample player, basically in C sound, uh, which you probably know about. Uh, it's kind of a dinosaur now, but again, it's just like uh, Charles Dodge with Fortran. It's what I uh, know how to use mm -hmm. and can work with relatively uh, quickly and effectively. So, um, uh, and then I, once I have that sort of sample player, then I'll, I'll go to the harmonic side and have a family of chords and I'll look at uh, you know, all different spacings of a particular family of chords and use those as the raw material that then will um, generate a chord progression, right? And the the the, um, um, the the constraints on the chord progression are that I want to have you know this particular range, maximum range, and then perhaps a number of common tones. You know, and moving so move to a chord from that same family that shares two common tones with the previous chord, and then octaves are allow, are allowed or or are not allowed um, as needed. And then so from that then those that those that chord progression is just sort of like a chorale. And then that can be arpeggiated in thousands of different ways, you know, okay. sometimes playing some notes together, other notes not together, sometimes only contiguous notes, or sometimes um, not contiguous notes, uh, or sometimes, you know, one chord will get going and the next one will, will start before the previous one has ended. So you get all kinds of different sorts of overlaps and chords and so on. And, and so that, that just generates a tremendous amount of material, yeah. as you can imagine. And so then I, I, I do an awful lot of sorting through that and throwing stuff away that's not interesting. And then take the little bits that sort of um, work out to be nice and, uh, and flag those. And so then eventually the, the piece is put together as a kind of collage. And then at the same time, I'm writing the solo part. So the solo part can be things that are interesting just for the solo instrument, or they can be, in other words, they work as kind of, for the audience, they will be inputs to what happens in the audio part. You'll hear the cello play something and then the audio part on the, the audio will, will um, respond in some way to that. 
And then at other times, the, um, the audio material will then suggest ideas for the solo part. And so some things in the solo part will arise from uh, what just happened to come out of the, uh, um, the algorithmically generated audio. So, and, and all of that, is, it's, it plays into the idea of the piece of, of um, you know, what, what's live and what, what's the human performer and what is um, mechanically reproduced. Interesting, um, and that's that's quite fascinating to think about. Um, are you familiar with the the music of George Lewis and like the Voyager system? Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't sound like I mean, it sounds like that's sort of different. Uh, like this is you're more of a sort of continual process, and that's more just real time processing. Or um... yeah, I mean, I don't do um, real time processing of audio. In fact, I, and I, I mean, I've heard a number of pieces that are quite compelling that do, that use the, uh, that use real-time manipulation of, uh, of audio that is generated by the performer on stage. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I, I sort of realized a while ago was that, that um, sometimes it becomes very difficult to tell whether something is being generated in real time or whether it's fixed media. Mm -hmm. And um, that also sort of fascinated me, you know, because if, if you can't tell the difference, then does it matter whether it's one or the other? Right. And uh, I mean, there's a certain uh, attraction for doing uh, real-time processing because of um, the difficulty of doing it, right? Particularly a number of years ago when it was much, much harder technically to make right. that happen. And then as the technology has, has improved and it's become increasingly um, uh, it's become easier and easier to make that happen on stage. I think it's become more and more compelling to a number of people. But I always focus on, you know, I, I would only want to use that technology if I really felt as though it was necessary for the audience's experience. You know, if they were going to, um, if the fact that the sounds were being generated in real time was, um, a, a key element of the piece and something that would be palpable to the audience. Uh, I had an interesting discussion with Curtis Bond, who teaches at Rensselaer Polytechnic about that. He had written, Curtis had written a number of pieces that um, use an uh, electric upright bass outfitted with all kinds of force sensing resistors, like the kind that you used to see on stereo systems where you hold the hold your finger and press harder and it would move faster. So he had the current set up so that that was triggering samples and so mm. on. And the fascinating thing was it was generating a kind of, you know, a hodgepodge of different sounds of all kinds, you know, clinks and clanks and things that had nothing to do with, you know, sounds that we associate with acoustic instruments. And it was impossible to tell by, by watching Curtis play what was generating what. You, know, you would see him make a hand motion on the bass. And then a few seconds later, you would hear something completely different and you had no idea what that was part of the original gesture. In other words, the gestures were, were separate from the auditory experience. Mm -hmm. And I asked Curtis about this. I said, you know, and he said, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was going for. That's, that was the idea, you know, to put the audience in that sort of state of now, maybe I'm misrepresenting uh, Curtis's aesthetic in that piece, but um, that sort of crystallized for me that I wanted to do just the opposite of that. I wanted to make sure that the, um, that the, that everything that the audience saw um, was reflected in what they were hearing and vice versa. Um, 
so that if something happens in the audio part, I want the soloist to respond to it or the soloist to play something and uh, trigger something in the audio part that's palpably related to what they just did and so on. So I, I wanted that um, I wanted that connection to, to be there. Interesting. Um, in terms of like uh, your processing uh, in a C sound, uh, can you sort of break down what some of those logics look like or like uh, what that, I mean, I guess what the numbers are? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, there are two, there are two parts of it. One is the, the harmony part that generates mm -hmm. this room. Uh, uh, the, the chord progressions or the chorales based on these chords. And then the other part is the, the um, actual um, generation of the sample playback. And the latter, the sample playback is, is trivial. It's just simply looking up the particular pitch number and playing it. Uh, and I, I mean, where it becomes interesting is the timing, of course, you know, when certain things happen and, and all of the, the, the rhythmic gaps. And I've experimented with all kinds of different ways of doing that uh, and, uh, and continuing to sort of figure out different sorts of patterns um, to, to, uh, to make that more interesting. Uh, and but and for the harmony um, again, I guess that that is also not terribly complicated. As I said, it's um, um, essentially chord progressions based on uh, numbers of common tones and ranges. And of course, it, the sound is going to be completely transformed by what kinds of families of chords you put in there. If you put in different spacings of an augmented triad, you get one kind of result. And if you put in a you know, like a, a whole tone scale, you get something well similar. But if, if you put in a, you know, a diminished whole tone scale or an octatonic scale, you'll get something uh, very different. So, um, uh, and all of those are variables. So I, again, I, I think the I, my idea is to put in um, all kinds of different inputs and see what's generated. And then from there approach it the way a collage artist might of sort of picking and choosing and um, pasting together things that didn't or weren't originally generated together. So in a way it's a kind of, um, the algorithms generate all this material and then my own human responses edit it mm -hmm. um, and uh, overrule <laughs> the algorithms. Uh, I'm choices. in a similar process right now with the, this death metal project where I will make a human edit and then I try to like look back at it and be like, how can I automate that into the system already? Um, do you feel like you reflect on your choices and like observe uh, like through lines between them and like, do you have something that like, do you have a sense of why you like that over other things on a theoretical Yeah, I, that, that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, I, this is something that I've discovered bit by bit as I've worked in this way. And that is that very often when I go back and I listen to what's been generated, it sounds very different from what I thought it would sound like. And in fact, I've had the experience of looking at the audio and thinking, well, this, this is supposed to sound very syncopated and odd. And then I listen to it. And when I hear it, I hear it, uh, particularly I hear it metrically completely different from the way it was originally generated. Mm. So, and, and that, that immediately raises all kinds of fascinating questions about the notation and about what the human performer is going to uh, be, be looking at when she looks at the, at the part. Uh, you know, for example, again, if you take that example of when you've got um, five 16th notes and there's an accent on the second 16th note of the second beat. Well, do you want to, do you want to write that maybe as Th three plus two, 16 as one measure, 
or do you want to leave it as a syncopation in four or four, or do you want to make that second 16th of the second beat? Do you want to uh, scooch things around so that that becomes a downbeat, right? And so the, um, I'm, I'm constantly um, shifting the material metrically based on what I'm hearing um, generated by the, by the algorithmic, um, um, uh, the, by the algorithm, I guess. Um, and, and then um, if I, I, I find it becomes musically different just based on the way I hear it. And then sometimes I hear it differently than the performers do. So for example, I had the great good fortune to work a lot with Dan LaPelle, the guitarist, who's a marvelous musician with a spectacular ear, but more, even more important than that is he's a tremendously adventurous creative spirit. So um, I, everything that I've written uh, for Dan, I've written with it secure in the knowledge that if it's compelling to me, he's gonna be able to find a way to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's ultimately gonna be compelling to him. So I, I would give him <clears throat> segments of music and he, he, it wouldn't come out sounding the, right, the way I was thinking of it. And I said, well, I guess what I'm really hearing is that that, that note is the downbeat. And so then I'll rebar it, you know, just mm -hmm. so that this measure becomes this and then that lands on the downbeat. And all of a sudden it snaps into place exactly as I was hearing it. Um, so that, that part of the process is enormously rewarding and fascinating <clears throat> because as much as we... Um, think the computer is going to do something for us. It's our own frail human perception that's going to um, ultimately determine uh, what's musically compelling and interesting. And then at that point, I'll, I'll overrule the algorithm without, without a moment's hesitation. Um, I, I want to be uh, respectful of your time. I just have a, a few more questions that we can sure. uh, wrap up with. Um, I'm sort of curious if you've seen any of these like uh, generative uh, adversarial networks, like the GANs and uh, various types of AI that are generating things. Uh, not not specifically the GANs, um, although I, I just I am a kind of um, uh, uh, computer hobbyist, mm. uh, and so I do uh, you know everything from The Sims to uh, um, to more recent AI networks that that learn based on massive amounts of inputs. Uh, so sure, I, I mean, I think all of that's fascinating and has very interesting, uh, uh, raises very interesting possibilities for music. Um, do you, I mean, I guess, uh, like I'm wondering what sort of like possibilities you think are uh, ahead of us? <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I mean, I always... I always think of Oscar Wilde saying, "I can predict everything but the future." Right? Mm -hmm. um, if it, it, it's just, it really is impossible to imagine what. I mean, I, I read someplace that um, science fiction writers tend to um, uh, tend to vastly overestimate what can happen from one decade to the next, or from one century to the next, but vastly underestimate what can happen from one decade to the next. So, you know, here, here's my cell phone, which is a more powerful computer than the room size computers that were, uh, mm -hmm. that were around when I was, uh, you know, even in high school. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, in, in that sense, it's hard to predict. I mean, well, I guess one thing I would say is that um, um, music will, will always be something that's meaningful to human beings. It's something that's, I think, um, if it's not wired into us, it's it's something that resonates with us in a in a very powerful way. So I never worry about the future of music necessarily. And you know, just for even, it, it, I I've been uh, dismayed by the um, gradual 
you know, evisceration of music education in the elementary schools and, and primary and secondary schools. Um, but even then, I, I see young people coming up like Conrad Tao and like the Jack Quartet. And, and I'm just absolutely amazed, and not only at the technical skill with which they play, but also at the musicianship and the humanity of their playing. Mm. Um, so I, I, I don't worry. I don't think uh, Mozart's in any trouble. <laughs> <laughs> there's always going to be, a gen or Elliot Carter for that matter, that I, I always think there's going to be a generation. If the music is compelling, it's going to find its uh, advocates. Uh, so that that's uh, deeply reassuring, I think. Mm. And then as far as the technology goes, AI, or if it's electronic music, I mean, that, I'll tell you another wonderful Elliot Carter story in um, uh, uh, the film A Labyrinth of Time, A Labyrinth of Time that Frank Sheffer made of Carter's music. There's a scene of Carter uh, with Ursula Oppens as she's rehearsing the piano concerto. Mm -hmm. And she says something like, well, in 50 years, I'll tell everyone that I was studying this piece with you, you know, to tell them how important it was to get his input. And he said, oh, 50 years. In 50 years, they won't even have a piano. <laughs> which I thought was quite an amazing comment to make as you're mm -hmm. listening to somebody play your piano concerto. Right. Uh, but I, I mean, I think the, the other side of that coin is, yeah, you know, there will always be musical instruments along with, there will always be musicians. So, <clears throat> uh, you know, I, I might not like everything. I might be yelling at, at those kids to get off my lawn, but, um, <laughs> but I, I'm, uh, uh I, I'm excited to to see you know, in whatever time I have left on this planet what what, what the kids will do and uh, hope to continue to contribute to that myself. But mm -hmm. uh, but I, I mean it's it's the safest bet in the world to say it's going to be an exciting time for music. I feel like uh, you know composition and music has a lot of like game like elements to it, and seeing how like you know AlphaGo has essentially like dominated Go and like you know chess is. Have been dominated by AIs. Uh, like, is that something that you can do with a creative practice um, that doesn't oh, really have you know uh, a goal like chess does? Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I think that's a great great question. And um, you know, we've as human beings, we've had to reconcile ourselves to the fact that um, our dominance in chess and Go have, have fallen by the wayside now. And you know, there's another one of those sort of Turing tests for music, which is you know. Are you able to tell whether something was generated by a synthesizer or by a mm. human performer? And I saw on, on Facebook recently somebody had posted a, a you know a, something from from YouTube that sounded very at first very much like a human being, but was in fact a synthesizer. And there was a kind of um, uh, pleasure that the the commenters took in being able to tell that it was a machine, not a human. There was a satisfaction there that immediately made me think of the satisfaction that great chess players had prior to <laughs> the last few years. And I thought, you know, that's a Turing test that's bound to fall at some point. At some point, we will be, humans will be able to design computers that will be able to produce music indistinguishable from uh, the music that a human being could play. Right. And I think we better, you know, we better reconcile ourselves to the fact that that day is coming um, and not despair, but rather say, well, um, what can we learn from that? Uh, how can that make us more interesting human composers and human musicians? Or how can we press those machines into service for our own 
uh, our own ends and to use for what they can tell us about our own lives and our own um, interconnectedness relationships. Um, somebody like Kanlan Nankaro comes to mind and like, you know, the process of making those uh, player piano sheets was, I'm sure, a performance in and of itself. But like, uh, do you feel like it's important that music is performable by humans or do you like, what do you think about superhuman uh, compositions? Oh, yeah. The, I mean, those Nankaro pieces are fascinating, but they are, they are deeply uncanny for that reason. Yeah. You know, you, you, once you realize that they couldn't be played by a, a human being, you begin to wonder who's playing them. Right. And of course that, that is, we've just been talking about that's, that is my interest in these pieces that I've been writing for live performer mm -hmm. and, uh, and audio. So clearly that's, that's something that's, I, that I find um, compelling um, to think about, but um, uh, you know, I, I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily dislike the, the Nan Carroll player piano studies. Um, uh, the, the, the sameness of, um, of timbre and attack quality mm. becomes a bit uh, numbing after a while, I think, but, um, but no, those are, those are fascinating pieces of, right. and, um, and pioneering. No, I, I, I don't have any objection to that kind of superhuman performance. The, the, one other thing I'll say is that um, uh, when circular breathing became extremely popular among saxophone players and, and woodwind players in general, I guess, but I heard it first in jazz, mm -hmm. um, I became aware of um, a very striking phenomenon. If you listen to someone play while circular breathing, there will come a point at, at which you begin to feel tense and constricted in your chest and you begin to feel a little short of breath yourself <laughs> because you're waiting for the person to breathe. Interesting. Um, and that, that's, that phenomenon, I think, is something that's worth thinking about as you are working with those kinds of superhuman mm -hmm. uh, machines. What what sort of story are you telling, right? And uh, I mean, not that that's bad, but what, you know, how, but, but you want to be aware of what story you're telling, right? You want to, uh, you want to be, um, you want to be making a point or you want to be telling that story. You don't want uh, it to be told without your knowledge. <laughs> right. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Well, um, well, I guess we can wrap this up. I'm uh, just can we end with uh, what you're working on and uh, anything to look out for in the near future with yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, on, on the scholarly side, the Elliot Carter side, I have a book coming out, as I said, called um, Elliot Carter's Late Music, uh, which is in production now at Cambridge University Press. And everything is slowed down by the by the pandemic. But uh, I expect that that book will be out probably uh, late in 2021 or early 2022. Uh, and that'll be, you know, available wherever finer books are sold. Um, and then for my own composition, I'm, I'm juggling a couple of things. I, as I said, I've been working on a piece for Carolyn Stinson for cello and audio uh, that I've run into some technical issues that have, have I've been working on this piece for a long time, but uh, that now I think I've got squared away. So that that's one, uh, one project. Uh, and then another is I've, I've received a commission from the fantastic ensemble counterinduction uh, for a piece for them. And we're still sort of uh, working out what the instrumentation will be, but that, that will be the next uh, sort of large scale piece. So I'm very excited about that. And that will, uh, will make it under their season as soon as uh, it's safe to resume uh, performing uh, uh, at, a, at a date to come. So 
And I guess I should plug my website, which is travelingmusic.com, if anyone's interested in uh, learning more about me. And I, I teach at uh, William Patterson University in New Jersey. So I'm that John Link. There's another John Link who <laughs> has a vocal quartet uh, in, uh, in New York. But, and then another who's a film editor in Hollywood, whose name <laughs> pops up in the credits sometimes, to my surprise. I will know that it's not you if I see a, a movie <laughs> credit. Um, I'll be uh, looking forward to this Elliot Carter book. Uh, I'll be refreshing the Amazon page. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, John Link, thanks so much for joining me. Um, it was really fun talking to you. Thanks, John. It was a pleasure. All right. Adios. Okay, bye-bye.